From the CDC's mask mayhem to defunding the police, this is Vince and Jason, Save the Nation. Hey guys, welcome back to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. I'm Jason Nichols. I'm here with my colleague and very good friend, uh, Vince Colonies, and we're going to talk a little bit about defunding the police and masking. So Vince, what do we got? Well, this week is a huge week in terms of the CDC flipping yet again on the guidance that it's giving to Americans. And you've got news outlets all across the political spectrum admitting that we are now watching the goalposts being shifted in very real time. Uh, the claim is that this Delta variant of the coronavirus is the reason why we need to see vaccinated Americans put masks back on. Now, this flies directly in the face of the message that Joe Biden came out with in May when he suggested that vaccines were the ticket out of masking. In fact, he released videos uh, for the social media accounts of the White House saying things like vax or masked, making it really clearly clear that the options were get vaccinated to get out of the mask or otherwise stay in the mask. Those are the recommendations. But now things have changed. We've gone from the summer of freedom the and the idea that people could get their life back to normal to a situation where the CDC is now saying people got to put the masks on if they're in high transmission areas, even if they are vaccinated. Now, additionally, they also said children K through 12 throughout the entire country are expected to be masked in the fall of this year. Uh, and again, that's, that's despite the very low transmission and, and impact on children that COVID has. So, Jason, my beef this week is that I don't think the CDC has adequately supported this pretty dramatic change, that if we were going to make a change like this and encourage localities to start imposing mask mandates, many of which have started doing that very thing at the best of the CDC, that you need data to support it. And I don't think that the CDC has adequately provided data to support the idea that vaccinated Americans need to start wearing masks again. What do you think? Yeah, I, I would agree that they at least need to be more transparent or tell us what's going on uh, rather than just putting blindly putting these uh, uh, mandates out or the guidances out there without really giving us uh, the backstory. I think that that's really important right now. Uh, we've been through 18 months. People are worried very much about transparency. And when you're not transparent, that's when all these weird conspiracy theories start to pop up. Right. And then you have to battle those in addition to telling people the truth. I think coming out and saying, this is the science behind it. This is the study that we're using. This you know, uh, is why we have this guidance is important. However, I will say this in defense uh, of the CDC is that, again, I think many Americans are losing their minds and there's been a lot of fear mongering in the media, what's new. And part of that is not recognizing that this is mainly for high transmission areas. Like this is not gonna happen to people everywhere throughout the country. People who have been getting vaccinated uh, throughout the country in high numbers do not have to necessarily worry about, you know, getting a mask mandate from their government, but, uh, at the behest of the CDC. Right. So if you've been vaccinating, your neighbors have been getting vaccinated, you are actually in pretty good shape. 
it's the places that have these low vaccination rates. So, you know, we're talking about Alabama, we're talking about Mississippi, uh, not Mississippi, I'm sorry, maybe Mississippi. I know Alabama, certain parts of Texas, certain parts of, um, of Missouri, where they've got high hospitalization rates. That's where, you know, they're worried about the transmission. And as you stated earlier, this has been, you know, the CDC, based on information that was leaked, I believe, to the Washington Post, um, in one of their slides, they're saying that they believe that the Delta variant, which is the primary variant in this country right now, right. is far more transmissible, as transmissible as measles and uh, chickenpox, right. and may uh, be spread to about nine, one person can spread it to nine people on average, whereas the original COVID, which shut down the entire nation for a year, yeah, uh, it was one person transmits to two people. See, but you brought up something I think I think that's essential. You mentioned hospitalizations and Missouri. Uh, that's a word that I wish we would hear more when you get public health authorities talking about draconian measures that they want to apply to populations. Right. Because if we go back those 18 months to the beginning of the pandemic, 15 days to slow the spread, flatten the curve. What was that all about? It was about stopping the severe outcomes of covid. Right. Hospitalizations and death naturally. Now, I wish that um, that there would be sort of an honest commitment to sticking to, oh, yes, only the worst areas are really going to have to be subjected to this. But that's we've already seen this week. It's, it's already very confusing. And you have areas where there isn't gigantic transmission that are being locked into mask mandates yet again. The obvious example, the one that is right here in our backyard is Washington, D.C., David Leonard is a New York Times reporter, wrote about it this week. And he said, well, wait a second. D.C., uh, you have the United States House of Representatives first and the White House first imposing mask mandates on the people with inside of the building. And then subsequently, Mayor Muriel Bowser just announced that this starting this Saturday, there's a mask mandate for everybody who's indoors inside Washington, D.C., whenever you're out of your own home. Um, and. David Leonard at the New York Times is asking, OK, what's the justification for this? Because when I look at the CDC's map, it shows that there is modest transmission in D.C., not substantial transmission. And in addition, I, Jason, I went and looked at the death, the, the average deaths in Washington, D.C. yesterday. As of today, right now, over the last 30 days, it's zero. The average deaths in D.C. is zero. I believe five people total have died in D.C. over the last 30 days. But on any given day, we have an average of zero deaths. How in the world does that justify making people strap up again? Yeah, I, I, I will just uh, well, really quickly, I, I just want to give a shout out um, to a good friend of mine, Ari, who just lost one of his best friends to COVID. So I just want to give him a shout out. I know he's he's uh, going through it right now and he's my brother. So I wanted to show him some love. I I, um, I agree with, you know, fundamentally what you're saying. Show the justification for for making these things happen and these measures. And I also think that it does drive vaccination rates down in a lot of these areas because they're going to be asking, what's the point? Right. Um, what needs to be understood about the Delta variant is that it may, you know, these vaccines may prevent you from actually uh, getting the disease, but not as much as it will prevent you from getting very sick. So we want to uh, get people vaccinated so that they don't get sick and get um, 
very ill and end up in the hospital or die. And a lot of people who think they're healthy may, may have some underlying issues that can actually cause, you know, death or hospitalization. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be, we have to be careful. I understand erring on the side of caution, but I think communicating to the public and having firm justification for making these changes is really important. Yeah. And I think that this is where places like DC are falling short. Um, I think that, you know, and I, I actually like Muriel, Muriel Bowser. I met her on one occasion. She was just incredibly kind, incredibly nice. Uh, we both were giving uh, a speech to some high school students at their graduation, and she was just so gracious and kind um, to everybody. And she, I think she's a good person, but I think in this particular case, um, I think she's being overly cautious. I think she, or at, or at the very least, she should show the evidence that she is working on to make this decision. And I think it would go over better right. amongst uh, many people. I, I also understand, I will say this last thing real quick before I turn it over to you, that I think maybe her justification um, is that she's thinking that DC is a model for so many uh, people around the world. And if you have all these politicians who are going to be filmed going into buildings um, unmasked, people in some of those areas where it's more dangerous and people are not vaccinated are not going to wear masks. So DC becomes a model for the entire country and you know arguably for the entire world it's the center of power and if you see joe biden walking into a building but yet he's telling people in you know st louis missouri to mask up mm-hmm. you know while he's unmasked uh it's gonna it's gonna be you know misunderstood and the same thing again uh just one one last point here uh i don't know did you see uh a lot of politicians on the Right and media figures making fun of the Secretary of Defense for wearing a mask and a shield. For wearing, yeah, for wearing a windshield on his face. Yes, I was right. one of them. <laughs> you were one of them. Yes. Now, did you recognize that that is the the, the law in the Philippines? Where yeah. You so I I know that. Uh, well, actually, well, all I did was make the comment. I just pointed out that he has a windshield on his face, which I think is is very silly. Okay, Jason, on that issue of vaccine hesitancy, which you brought up just a moment ago, I thought it was such a smart point. You know, if the government really wants everybody to get vaccinated, which is a good idea because it confers immunity on the people who actually get it, in addition to the people who we've, you and I, you and I have talked about, have achieved natural immunity through actually being infected by COVID, that ultimately it's just good for the population if more people have defenses against this thing, no matter how many variants end up coming along. But if there is ideological opposition to the vaccine. And there is, there's actually a couple different groups in the United States, some of them much more racial categories. There's, there's sort of uh, racial breakdowns of people who are, are hesitant to get the vaccine. And then there's also ideological breakdowns of people who are hesitant to get the vaccine. And the Biden administration has been focused very heavily, on, especially on the latter category, which is like sort of Trump supporting people who are skeptical of the government, uh, who don't want to get the vaccine as a result, no matter that Trump was involved in the development of this vaccine in the first place. Um, that group, I, it's hard for me to see how all of these things that the Biden administration keeps uh, uh, suggesting, whether it's mask mandates for high transmission areas, in particular uh, places in the American South, um, or like sending out volunteers to knock on doors to encourage people to be vaccinated, 
Like, as you go down that list, it seems to me every time the Biden administration introduces something new, all they're doing is like, I think, pushing people further and further into their ideological corners. It's not having the effect that the Biden administration wants it to have. It just drives people further away. And so for that reason, I think that like they're not thinking, thinking clearly about how to incentivize and encourage people to get vaccinated and instead are driving people away. So my, my, I guess my last question is, uh, how would you go about incentivizing people? And also, uh, my understanding is that the Biden administration actually gave uh, states the ability uh, and the resources to incentivize vac- vaccination, and many of them right. didn't do it, like it, like in Alabama, where they said, okay, we'll let you go around the, you know, the speedway in Tuscaloosa twice, but they're not giving scholarships, they're not giving lotteries, they're not doing those kinds of things that actually would incentivize people to get vaccinated. So I don't know if you blame that on the Biden administration, but even if you do, how exactly would you go about it? Or, or you know, what I, other incentive? I think that the the incentive to getting vaccinated is to establish immunity against the virus. All the other stuff like the, oh, you get free lottery tickets or a chance to win a scholarship or AirPods or whatever it is. I just think that whole thing is like patronizing nonsense because really what you're asking people to do is to inject themselves with a medicine. And so what you should do is make your best case, encourage them to do it. You can go ahead and you can run your public service announcements and all the things you can do to get in front of them. But at the end of the day, they're going to have to make a choice for themselves. And when they decide that they are just not getting it, no matter what, no matter who tries to suggest it to them, at some point, we should acknowledge the diminishing returns of that exchange. Say, look, this is a choice you made. That's risk that you are assuming unto yourself. And then get those vaccines across the planet. We've talked about it before. But there are millions of vaccines sitting in storage right here in the United States of America that have or are on track to expiring. Uh, and we shouldn't let that happen. We should send them out to vulnerable populations globally to stop more variants from being developed uh, and send them to populations who desperately want them. No, I, I agree with that 100 um, percent. I do think, you know, we have to, you know, in, in the words of all of those Trump supporters who are watching right now, um, America first. So I, I definitely think that we have to encourage our own people um, in order to keep people alive in the United States first. Um, the vaccines are here. There's an, a, you know, I think there are ways to battle the hesitancy. You mentioned some of the racial hesitancy. I think that there are ways to battle that um, as well. Um, and especially when we're looking at the uh, the disproportionate number of African Americans and, and Native Americans and Latinos that are dying of COVID and have died of COVID. I think that there's a way to market uh, those vaccines in those communities and encourage people to, to get the vaccine. Um, I think it's important uh, that we also share it with, with the rest of the world. And I think that, you know, that's, you know, uh, really important. I do think incentivizing it, just like you would incentivize someone to take, you know, any, um, you know, I, I don't want to make a one-to-one comparison here, but, you know, uh, when I was in college, you got all kinds of ads for different kinds of studies, you know, and NIH has all kinds of studies and how do they incentivize people to uh, take part in those experiments? You know, they give them money, you know what I mean? They, they make a financial, they give, you know, you a financial benefit 
to taking part in that study. And every now and again, you'll, you know, be taking a medicine for a heart medicine and you'll find a Viagra and your wife and you will be very happy about it. So <laughs> my thing is, I think that there are ways to incentivize people uh, and money is always a good incentive. Fair enough. All right. So Jason, tell me, what are you thinking about today? So I'm thinking about, you know, politics broadly. Now, one of the things uh, that we've been seeing recently right now, uh, particularly with the January 6th commission, is there's been a lot of focus on law enforcement. And the question is, of course, who's pro-law enforcement? Is it the right? Is it the left? Um, and right now, what we're seeing also is alternatives to uh, funding the police. So one of the big questions and one of the political weapons that the right was going to use uh, in 2022, they tried it in 2020, it didn't work as well, but that it was something that they were going to use in 2022 was defunding the police as a slogan. And that being very unpopular with people who are not part of the left and particularly uh i would say moderate democrats all the way to you know the right knew that that was not going to be the best slogan right uh for elections coming up yeah However, i mean i would say it, it i sorry I, just to on the point about the elections i think it did have a big impact in 2020 actually i mean you know obviously at the presidential level joe biden wins but Beyond that, like Nancy Pelosi lost a lot of seats and moderate Democrats were really furious about it. And you heard even Abigail Spanberger from here in Virginia, Democrat, moderate, uh, who expressed behind closed doors that defund the police very much threatened the Democratic caucus. I think. Yeah. And, and again, a Abigail Spanberger, I think, was out of line there because Abigail Spanberger has never run away with an election where she is. Spotsylvania County, I believe she's in uh, in, in in Virginia is always razor tight and she's always run razor tight races so why she's like i was hurt by you know defund the police when she's only ever won elections by two points or less i think is kind of ridiculous um she's just in a really really difficult district for both parties i mean it's just kind of split down the middle she's in northern virginia but she's on the border of you know the part of virginia that is uh more traditionally conservative right. so I think that, you know, her complaints, I was like, uh, Congresswoman Spanberger, you know, I didn't want to call her Abigail. Uh, Congresswoman Span Spanberger, you know, I mean, I think you need to look at your own situation and your own record uh, in elections and recognize that that's not what's hurting you. It's just you are in a difficult place. Um, and it is true that some seats were lost, but Democrats maintained a majority and also gained a majority in the Senate. Uh, so they control all three houses, uh, you know, all three, well, I won't say three branches, but uh, three houses of, you know, legislator, legis the two legislative houses, and of course, yes. uh, the executive branch. Um, and so, you know, with that, uh, I can't, I think it's kind of short-sighted to say that they lost, you know, when they won those those elections in Georgia, you know what I mean? Uh, I do. Two people who were pretty far to the left, um, they were able to win those Senate seats in Georgia and then yes. win in Arizona. Like, I think that, you know, this was a victory. 2020 right, was but, a victory. 
Right. But Georgia, obviously, was for very different reasons. That was that was pretty disconnected from the defund the police debate. That was, you know, sure. Republican Republican turnout vastly suppressed in right. the, um, in the special election, in the runoff elections, because of the basis skepticism that the election was even on the up and up. So they stayed home at the encouragement. Some percentage did enough. Uh, at the encouragement of people like Lynn Wood, who was out there saying, don't even bother voting, uh, which was insane. And, and he made well a paid Lynn Democrat operative. <laughs> oh, he's not a paid Democrat no, operative. I said, I said he may as well have been a paid Democrat operative. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, uh, Lynn Wood, I miss Lynn Wood, Sidney Powell. We miss you guys. Come back, please, before 2022. We need you. Um, but yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, but a win is a win you know, by an inch or by a mile. And I think what happened um, is that defund the police certainly did not keep people, you know, or, or encourage Democrats, excuse me, Republicans to go out and vote. You know, they weren't like, oh my God, they're going to defund the police. We better get out there and vote. That certainly didn't drive them to the polls. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's questionable about whether that's a winning strategy, but um, now, I think Nancy Pelosi has other arguments, and, and that is the American Rescue Plan, um, which was signed into law in, in March uh, by President Biden, which actually adds funding to policing. And that's been Joe Biden's MO throughout his career. He wants more police. He wants to fund the police, even when it doesn't necessarily give you the returns that you want. That's something that you know, Joe Biden, it's been his MO is policing is the end all be all. So he puts money into policing through the American Rescue Plan and every single Republican voted against it. Can, can so I now? Can Nancy I flag Pelosi, this? Let, let me, no, okay. no, you can't. <laughs> let me just finish this point. OK, great. Um, Nancy Pelosi is going to make the argument that it's Republicans who want to defund the police now. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I've heard it. And I think the argument is preposterous. And here's why. I know you do. <laughs> because the American Rescue Plan had money that was dedicated to states and localities, $350 billion. That is, that's the pool of money we're talking about. That money was for discretionary use by those states and localities to make up budget shortfalls wherever they might occur. Now, one of the, the dirty little secrets of all of this is that there weren't actually big budget shortfalls in most states around the country. Most states, uh, somewhat surprisingly, hit their tax revenue expectations. So a lot of states have big surpluses now, thanks to the federal money that uh, came in due to the American Rescue Plan. So when Democrats now use refer to that money, they will say, well, that money could have been used in a discretionary way to fund police departments. So therefore, Republicans, by voting against that gigantic package, they voted to, quote, defund the police. That's not true, actually. What, what they voted, they voted against the totality of that package. And in there was $350 billion dedicated to these states and localities where you could add money to the police at the state level if you wanted to. So I, I get that. Um, I, I think what this story represents, as I've viewed it, is a sort of desperation to recast blame for where the defund the police energy was coming from. Uh, and and that was and it might not be any particular high ranking Democrat themselves, but there's no question that there was a lot of energy within elements of the Democratic Party's base 
that were very much for defund the police last year. And that is not a winning political message. There is there is no category. There's no um, majority category of people within the United States who support that. So as a result, it's such a toxic thing to support that you need to make it appear like your political opponent is actually the one who supports it. Yeah, no, I, I it, there's a lot of what you said that I agree with. Now, it, it was certainly a guidance, you know, speaking of guidances, and many of those localities used the money to fund the police. Now, um, and there's so much that you said there that I think was really important, and, and a lot of it I actually agree with. Um, I've always thought defund the police and the further left uh, slogan. I think sloganeering is is always a, a bad way to get across. <laughs> right. You better be sure. You better be sure that you kick the tires on that slogan before you roll it yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there are certain slogans that even if it's completely disingenuous, like, you know, uh, you know, the whole thing with critical race theory, completely disingenuous. But we knew that it was going to strike a chord and it did. Um, defund the police was not one of those things that was going to strike a, a real strong chord and abolish the police was going to do even worse. Um, now, when you looked at abolish the police, for example, it was talking about dismantling failing police uh, departments and rebuilding them like they did in Camden. Um, that was the, the idea was if it's failing, just like you do with a failing school, you take it down, except in this case, you actually rebuild it. Um, and but the slogan doesn't really reflect that. Then the then you have defund the police, which isn't about defund the police. I always said a better slogan would have been deburdening the police. And the way to go about that is to have police allow police to do their job rather than a job that they are not trained to do. So one of the things that we've seen recently is uh, mental health response teams and they've been doing it in New York City and it's you know one of the the program in New York City and it's really been kind of piloted in the area in New York City where they've had the most uh, mental health crisis calls and that is in North Manhattan um, in Harlem you know Washington Heights inwood those areas in, in northern Manhattan and what they found, is that and the program is called be heard um is that it's been very successful in terms of de-escalating situations in terms of getting people treatment and help getting them to voluntarily get help um, sometimes talking them down so they don't uh turn violent or uh harm people or harm themselves right. and getting them to go to the hospital if they need it it's been more successful than calling the police. What does that actually do? It yeah. deburdens the police. They don't have to go, go out for calls, you know, to for something that they're not necessarily trained for. Right. And so that's what really, if we wanted to talk slogans, um, that's what should happen. I actually think you can take some of the funding from policing, put it in different community programs, actually drop crime and still pay police more, which I believe police officers should make more money. That's one of the things that I've always argued for. If I want more responsibility from you, I want you to get paid more because if you get paid more, I expect more. Um, and we expect a whole lot out of police who, who make life and death decisions. And I yeah. believe that they actually should be paid, you know, life and death decision money. 
one of the things that I've I've suggested is that like we do with police, like in Washington, DC, uh, excuse me, teachers, like in Washington, DC, um, where they get paid based on performance, they get bonuses based on performance. If you are a high performing teacher, you can make six figures in Washington, DC. Uh, if you are a low performing teacher, they move you out. Um, I think it's the, the same thing for policing. It shouldn't be just the standard salary. I think we should have bonuses for, for high performing police officers where they make more money. Um, so again, my argument is that the sloganeering, and this is where I think you and I agree, is that the sloganeering opens a political window for opponents to attack what's being said, which defund the police sounds punitive, right. rather than a way to actually help the community and deburden and help police to yeah. police better. Yeah. So. Um... One, I'm kind of I'm open minded about uh, other techniques to bring down crime because that's really the goal, right? To make communities safer and to take better care of them and to have them thrive. So, uh, you know, if if mental health interventions are showing uh, signs of progress, uh, that's that's good. I, anything that actually genuinely shows signs of progress and isn't just us dumping money down the drain and taking away effective resources uh, is a good is good sign. Um, when it comes to policing and defunding the policing, it, it wasn't just sloganeering over the last year. It, it definitely occurred in a bunch of communities where you saw money that was taken away, Minneapolis, Baltimore, New York. And then what has happened since then, you've seen those cities, uh, Oakland, I think as well, you've seen those cities restore a lot of the funding that they had taken away because political passions had come so quickly in the wake of George Floyd's death that you saw uh, lawmakers in those cities strip funding really rapidly and now regret that or now are restocking the funding because they saw pretty consequential rises in crimes in their city. And they think that having policing as they respond to their communities, by the way, the local communities very much want good, effective and available policing uh, when their cr when crime goes up. That makes sense. One element of this that I don't think is talked about enough by the right or the left is that it's not just the police themselves who are in the criminal justice system. We often think of just the cops, the frontline guys who have to deal with yeah. crime, but it's also the prosecutors and the judges. So in, in Washington, one of the issues that's been going on in Washington, D.C., and the reason why Mayor Muriel Bowser is trying to do some, trying to sort of pass the blame a little bit on the rise in homicides is she says that the court system has com been completely locked up with a backlog of cases from COVID last year. And the end result is that a lot of these violent criminals are coming in, just going out because there is no um, a paid bail in D.C. And they're getting out rather quickly. And then like their court dates never come. And then you basically have violent people who get back to the streets in no time uh, and scaring the hell out of the communities that they return to and then subsequently committing more crimes. That's a gigantic problem. And, you know, Naya Courtney, the six year old who just died a couple of weeks ago, shot in the middle of at the intersection of uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X Boulevards in Washington, D.C. Um, she she died 11 o'clock at night. There were like six people who were shot in addition to her, but she was the one who died. Totally tragic. And the guy who shot her now in custody was a guy who was out on bond from Maryland, uh, who last year had been involved in a grand theft auto and an illegal weapons charge, illegal weapons possession charge. So what you're finding is like, there are people who are committing crimes, then they're back out in public. He was awaiting trial during that meeting time. He killed a six-year-old girl. It, like, 
there are things we need to fix. And it's not just the number of police on the street. I mean, for sure. I, I, and I, I don't um, I don't think anybody would disagree that we certainly have things that we need to fix in our, uh, you know, in terms of our criminal justice system. And, you know, it's interesting. I was watching this show the other day. Um, it's just like kind of a soapy show. It's called All American. It's about like a football player or something. And, you know, when it, anyway, some of you, I'm sure, watch the show. And one of the things that I think they brought up in the show that I was like, you know, this needs to be stated more. We don't have a criminal justice system. We have a criminal legal system. And not everybody gets justice, you know. Um, so one of the things that I would say, um, you know, and, and there are tragic events that happen all over the country um, and for many reasons that can be prevented. I do think this focus on, you know, the number of policing, you are correct that I think that people on the left and the right, particularly on the right, focus far too much, oh, police are the answer to everything, not education, not drug treatment, not some of these other things. And I love the fact that you're open-minded about those things that can actually stop crime before they actually happen. Um, I think one of the things that we've seen, you mentioned uh, defunding the police that did happen in a few places. And now everyone's rushing to fund the police again because they right. think that that's what's causing crime, but it's not. When you look at cities, particularly, I'll just name one, Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, excuse me, not Memphis, uh, Nashville, Nashville. Nashville, Tennessee uh, actually funded their police department more by 50% and has still seen murders and homicides spike. So this is not a one-to-one -one, you know, thing where it's like more police, less crime, you know? Um, and that's actually been proven, you know, throughout time, but it's certainly been proven recently. The other thing that I've been hearing from the right a lot of times is, oh, crime in Democrat cities, mm -hmm. you know, but the cities run by Republicans have seen, uh, you know, a 26% increase in murders. So we're talking about big cities run by Republicans, Miami, Jacksonville, Fort Worth, as a matter of fact, murders are up 84.6% in Lexington, Kentucky. So these are all cities that are run by the right. And so what we have is an issue that's not part about partisan leadership. And yeah, I think that there are other ways that we can fix crime long term. And it's at a certain point, like I've always said, you can't just put a bucket down. You need to find the leak and shut it off mm -hmm. and figure out a way to actually fix the, the issue. Overall, still, if you look at it for the last uh, 28 years, when crime was at its highest in 1992, we're still doing relatively well. You know, 1992, crime was at, you know, violent crime and all crime was really, really high. And we've made a drop and now we're starting to curve back up and we need to figure out how we are going to um, stop crime and keep it from getting there. But we also don't need to fear monger and make it seem like, you know, around every corner is a murderer waiting to kill you. Um, I think that there are ways, you know, particularly in 2019, one of the things, you know, love or hate AOC, 
one of the things she said or she did was take money out of like the drug agency and put some millions of dollars of their budget into opioid treatment and yeah. rehabilitation. And I think that that and measures like that, when we start thinking of proactive ways to stop crime, police are great, but police are the backstop for crime. Let's try to stop it before it happens. Can I bounce something off of you that's, that's, that's a little slightly off topic, but related? Um, it's Robert Conti, the D.C. chief of police, said something that got me thinking this week uh, or this past week. Uh, so this was in the wake of you know a number of shootings, very high, high profile shootings that I've seen over the last few weeks, including uh, one outside Nats Park, uh, one that occurred on uh, K Street, uh, uh, excuse me, 14th Street. Um, and nearly diplomat. So, you know, there's like all these like reporters and journalists who are already sitting there eating or walking down the street. Jim Acosta captured it on his cell phone. So obviously in a very visible part of DC for the rest of the world versus, you know, there's so many of the shootings that typically happen in places like Southeast that don't get any coverage. Um, so Robert Conti uh, talking about all this, he pointed to uh, marijuana decriminalization. And I don't think many people dwelled on this very much in the press, but I was kind of struck by it. He said that this environment where they've decriminalized marijuana in, in DC, they definitely have, um, has created a pretty robust black market for marijuana sales. And the end result is if you grow a marijuana black market uh, in a community, so while decriminalization was sort of designed to stop having people who are smoking weed or selling weed get caught up in the criminal justice system, or as you call it, the criminal legal system. But the downside is that the black market for weed is so much more prolific now that uh, there is there tends to be violence that, that plays out that is drug sale related. And so Robert Conti said that like there is actually a problem with a meaningful uptick in violence that's directly connected to the decriminalization of marijuana. And he, he, the way he introduced it, it got me thinking about it in a way that I hadn't thought about it before. Um, what do you make of that argument? Um, you know, that, that's a tough one. I, I can't necessarily uh, agree with that. Um, what I would say, you know, I, I, well, I'll, I'll also present and I hope, you know, I'm not misrepresenting my colleagues um, research and we'll have to have them on the show at some point. But I have a colleague who deals with violence and violence prevention, uh, primarily in Prince George's County and some in Washington, D.C. And, you know, primarily uh, dealing with African-American men. Um, and one of the things that he was pointing to was the criminalization of marijuana um, and actually the probation system, a lot of them were on probation and, you know, probation and I guess to a certain extent parole, a lot of these young men, um, would end up smoking synthetics, synthetic marijuana that you can get over the counter in DC, uh, convenience stores. Um, and with the synthetic marijuana, which you know causes all kinds of problems and is very toxic hmm. that it actually makes it a lot more dangerous than you know 
smoking with our producer, Richie would call a doobie, uh, you know, it, it, it's a lot more dangerous because it caused uh, psychosis. Um, so, and you know, people, when they're psychotic will, you know, and paranoid, they commit crimes and things like that. Um, and we also need to, again, talking about defunding the police, um, or, or I would say again, deburdening the police is violence prevention and finding ways to prevent violence. And this is where the academic community comes in is one of the ways where you actually you know, it has a secondary effect in terms of preventing violence because a lot of people have post-traumatic stress. So he deals with a lot of people who have been victims of some sort of violent crime uh, themselves. And so when they get that, get out on the street, they get out of the hospital, they get yeah. out of jail. Yeah. What do they do? They carry weapons. Right. The harder your life, the harder your life is, the harder the choices are that you make. Right. They're paranoid. So yeah. if you've got somebody who's paranoid, who's carrying a weapon, who's been a victim of violence, they are really quick to lash out, you know what I mean, uh, because of self-preservation. So I'm saying all that to say we need to find ways that don't involve the backstop. Of course, you know, police are it's interesting. Police are the front and the back gate of the criminal legal system. You know what I mean? Um, they catch criminals, you know, and they you know, also in some way, one can argue that their presence deters crime. That's, that's, you know, something that people debate about. Um, I think, I think it deters some crime, mm -hmm. but the issue is we can get it way before it gets to the gate. That's, right. that's what I believe, you know, give people good education. There's, there's, other programs, even in city, the city of Chicago, which has had so many issues uh, with crime and with policing, one of the things that uh, they have found is that getting kids summer jobs lowers summer violence. You know, yeah. So there are many programs that we can do and we can fund. There, you know, of course, the question is where does the money come from? Some people say, well, we can take some of that huge police budget that we give and put it towards these things that will make our existing officers' jobs easier. And at the same time, we can still raise their, uh, their salaries, at least of the good police. And I, like I said, I think it'd be good to have it be performance-based. Um, so that's, that's my argument. I don't know if that's a direct discussion of, of what um, Chief Conti said, but I, I, I don't think criminalizing, recriminalizing marijuana and getting people stuck in the system, right? more people stuck in the system and clogging the system up more, which, which is what Muriel Bowser is talking about, yeah. trying to deflect blame for, clogging the system up more is actually going to help things. That doesn't help police. That doesn't help the public, doesn't help public safety. So right. I, I'm going to disagree with him there. I'm maybe he's seeing something that I'm not. Yeah, I just think I, I, it almost seems like what he's suggesting is that the middle ground that weed is now in inside of Washington, D.C. has created a world where there's more drug involved violence. So when deals go sideways or people feel slighted uh, that that guns come out and violence occurs and 
Uh, it's kind of an argument to either get tougher on the criminal penalties, so make it mm -hmm. harder to actually, like what you were just saying, which of course would clog up the system, or just full-blown legalize it, and then uh, and that would take away, well, that would take away some hustles. That's that's yeah. that would be the impact. I can hear that. Yeah, you know, I, I can hear that argument. That that's, I think you, you know now that you that you say that, um, and it's not just about recriminalizing and getting tough on you know somebody who wants to roll, you know, one of Richie's doobies. <laughs> I, you know, I, I definitely think that we can um, that there's a discussion to be had about legalization. Um, yeah, I don't know what the I don't know what the right path is, but it just it struck me as very interesting that basically. The decriminalization, which was designed to make it so that weed was a little more hands off, that fewer need that there's like less of a reason to engage with people in the criminal justice system actually may have had may have had some um, unintended consequences, which is some growth in violence, according to Robert Conte. Yeah, no, I'm, I, you know, I can hear that 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 actually um, makes sense. I think getting tough on it um, like we did before, obviously, um, you know, this isn't the, the definition of insanity, but people say that it is, you know, uh, doing something over and over and expecting a different result. That's not the definition of insanity, by the way. But, you know, uh, that is something that people, you know, uh, have realized doesn't work. And now we're bringing in different avenues to try to deal with the criminal justice system because we have a criminal justice system that does not function for the benefit of people. I'm not going to say, uh, there are people out there who will say, you know, the criminal justice system is broken. I'm not one of those people because I think, you know, when you look at the the origins of the criminal justice system, in many ways, it's functioning the way it's supposed to. Um, but we will, we want to fix it to make it work for for people, particularly um, work for people who are not wealthy, who are not, uh, you know, powerful, connected. Yeah, you know, connected. Make it work for everybody. And I and I think that. Um, over policing overburdens police officers, number one, when there are people who are trained in different ways to actually help the community yeah. that can lower crime. Look, when Naya Courtney died, there was a cop there in 34 seconds. There was a police officer right nearby. And that wow. didn't change that didn't change the fact that she died. So there's wow. something bigger going on. Yeah, no, absolutely. We we definitely need to take some changes as, as a culture. Um, and have these discussions, and one of the things that's so disheartening about Washington, and I think you, Washington, D.C., um, or Capitol Hill, um, that I think you and I agree on, is that they can't have conversations like we do, you know, and, and not just go on Fox News or go on, um, you know, Newsmax or go on uh, CNN and just try to say, look, it's all their fault. You know, um, they can't come together and say, how do we solve these problems? We have different, you know, ideological issues. Here's my evidence. Here are my studies. Here's my, you know, my expert. Right. You give me yours. Let's try to find a solution. Um, and let's see what works. Let's pilot some programs. Let's let's fund some certain things that are going to help the public and help public safety. And for some reason, uh, it's more about getting elected and more about getting getting funding for their campaigns uh, than it is about actually solving the problems of the American people. And that's really, really disheartening. I agree completely. Yeah. And I hope you guys agree. Um, I hope everybody's viewer agrees 
but if you don't agree, that's cool too. One of the things that we want to do is start a conversation, have these discussions. You saw Vince and I disagree on certain things. You saw us come together on certain things. And that's what America needs. We need to get back to talking to one another, not hating our neighbors. And that's what we're doing here on Vince and Jason Save the Nation. We want you to be a part of our movement and what we're trying to do here at The Daily Caller and um, with Vince and Jason Save the Nation, which is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We're dropping new episodes. Pay attention. We'll be on Facebook Watch. We'll be on YouTube. And we are anywhere a podcast is found. Um, it's time to stop cheering red and blue and start cheering red, white, and blue. Amen. Peace Thank out. you, Jason Nichols.